When people first dream about marriage, they dream about the one, right? It's this person who is just perfectly compatible, and they're the only one for me. They hit all of the things on my proverbial list of qualities, but once you spend a little bit of time actually being married to that person, you realize, oh, you are the one, you're the only one that's here. You don't get to chase after other people. You don't get to run after other people. And it seems like everywhere that you turn from now on that that person is right there. And it seems like what we once dreamed of has now turned into something that we may try to avoid. And that is maybe that other person being around. So we get this idea and we think about it and we say, I know what the solution is. Let's make more little people. That'll make our lives better. So let's make other versions of ourselves. So we get this idea to have kids. I heard a comedian, he once uh, said this, that people who procreate are the most narcissistic people on the planet because they think they're so great that the world just needs more little versions of themselves running around. We have children, so now we have to deal with the challenge of not only interacting with our spouse, but now raising these little people together with us. And it seems like our ideas of living this fairy tale life have really changed once reality hits. So the question is, how do we respond? So I would like to submit to you that the gospel is the answer. Over the next few weeks, we're going to discover how marriage in light of the gospel will not only improve our lives, but how it will more importantly give glory to God through our marriages. So the thing in our day and age that I think we need to realize is that we don't need more marriage advice. We actually need a heart transformation. There are more resources in our day and age concerning marriage than ever before in human history. There are conferences, there are books, there are programs, there are even entire shows that are devoted to the subject, but it seems that the problem is getting worse. So the answer is not really us developing more resources and acquiring more resources or going to that conference or hearing that speaker or hearing that little nugget of truth that we haven't heard yet. No, the lack is not knowledge. The lack really is a true heart transformation. Let's go in Scripture over to Romans chapter 1, and that's where we're going to kind of hang out is in the book of Romans. Now remember, Romans is the Apostle Paul's letter to the Christian church in Rome, and this church needs to understand the gospel. And Paul beautifully lays out our need for Jesus and Jesus being our hope in the book of Romans. So let's read in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, and we're going to read verse 18 through chapter 2 and verse 29. So we're going to handle a large section of Scripture here. So stay with me. So turn in your Bibles and pull out your version app, whatever you got to do. Let's, uh, let's do this thing together here. Romans 1 and verse 18, the Apostle Paul says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made." 
So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. I want us to go back and let's read that just one more time before we keep reading. I don't want you to miss that. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in their lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Read verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips. They are slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Oh, man, this is hard stuff here we're reading. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Therefore, O oh man, you have no excuse. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the richness of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is actually meant to lead you to repentance? So Paul's saying God's kindness, the purpose of it is to lead you to repentance, not to give you a license to do whatever you want to do. He's saying the purpose of God's kindness is actually to lead you and draw you to a place of heart change. Verse 5, but because of your hard and infinite heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, those who do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and then also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all have sinned without the law, will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. 
For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. That means that God knows your heart. We always say that as an excuse for when we think that we've done something good that others may not quite see as good. We'll say, oh, well, you know, God knows my heart. Or when we've done something wrong that we're trying to justify, we'll say, God knows my heart. And we say that like it's a good thing. But here in Scripture, yeah, God knows your heart, but He knows the evil intent of our heart as well. That's not always a good statement to say God knows my heart because it shows us it shows us sin it shows us wrong desires it shows us um, all of this junk that paul's been laying out as a case for the depravity of humanity and our need for a savior verse 17 but if you call yourself a jew and rely on the law and you boast in god and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in the darkness, an instructor to the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of the knowledge of truth, then you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? Do you who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one who is a Jew is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Now I know we just read a huge portion of Scripture there, and I hope you didn't check out and start looking at who just commented on that meme that you just found and posted. I hope you stayed focused and you read through it. If you didn't, rewind it, go back, reread it, pause the live stream, and go back and reread this thing because it's so important that you get this because Paul is making a case here. He's explaining that humanity clearly sees God as good. But just like the Hebrews who were delivered from the Egyptian slavery turned to idols, we turn to idols. And we make God in our own image. We pervert how we view God by placing our own selfishness as a pretext to create God in our own image. This is the basic sin problem of humanity. This is the basic sin problem in marriage. And that's where this all connects. Because the problem in marriage is not a lack of knowledge. The problem in marriage is not a lack of conferences or a book or a radio program. The problem in marriage is the same problem that Paul just illustrates that all of humanity struggles with. And that is this idea of self-priority. 
self-focus, self-worship, this idea that, that my thought process, my value system, my ideas are right and are more important than other people's ideas. The, the idea that my happiness is more important than yours. And what we do is we go to war and we battle over whose expectations or ideas concerning marriage, whose priority is right. This is a heart issue. It is us putting ourselves ahead of others. It is our, ourselves putting our, ourselves ahead of our spouse. Boasting in the flesh causes pride and blindness. We see here that Paul was trying to also make a case for where the Jews had been placing their righteousness. They had been putting their righteousness in the hope of the fact that they were Jews. And as a matter of fact, they can trace their lineage all the way back to Abraham, Abraham our father. And you know, the law came to the Jews. It came through Moses. And Moses is a great hero of the faith. And so they would trace their lineage and their hope back to those people. And they could stand on the claim that God gave the law to the Jews. So they felt that they were special. And here you have Greek Christians and Jewish Christians, and they're in the same church in Rome together. And Paul's trying to make a very, very clear argument and case to the challenges that they were facing in misunderstanding the gospel. And it was causing tension in relationship. It was who's better. It's the same problem that you and I have in marriage. When we begin to think we're smarter than our spouse, when we begin to think we're, our ideas are more important than our spouse, we begin to think we work harder than our spouse, we begin to think that we are more valuable in the relationship and that our priorities and our, our care, uh, our ideas being the first in line, we think all those things are the priority. It's the same problem here. And that's the same problem that was in the Garden of Eden as well. When we see the serpent come and tempt Adam and Eve, what was the real temptation there? It was tempt they were tempted with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, instead of trusting in God's definition of what good and evil were and trusting in His definition of holiness, His definition of what good was, they wanted to decide what was good themselves. They wanted to decide what was evil themselves, thus becoming like God. And that's exactly what the snake told them. The serpent said, you'll become like God if you take of this fruit. And they took of this fruit because they wanted to know and be able to decide what was good on their own terms. They wanted to be able to decide what was evil on their own terms so they could live under self-rule. It's the same thing that still happens to this day in all sorts of relationships where we prioritize self above anything else. And it blinds us and we get prideful. Some of you, you're struggling with this message even now because you think you already know it. And the reason you think you already know it is because you've heard similar text presented similar ways and you may not be paying that good of attention to this message today because you're comfortable sitting at home thinking you've already got it figured out and you're not open to what the Holy Spirit is wanting to do in your heart. And you're missing it because you started with the pretext and the idea that I know this and it's pride. And pride will keep you from growing. Pride will keep you from learning. Pride will rob you of what humility will teach you. Pride will keep you at a place to where you just do not get things that God is trying to get through your hard heart. We always think people are hard-headed. I think they're hard-hearted where they're not soft and pliable before the Lord because they are still living under this idea of self-rule. You see, 
because we're prideful, because we are blind, we stumble and we fall. The Jews were boasting in their circumcision in the flesh. They were boasting in the law. We've got the law. We're Jews. And then they were boasting in circumcision of the flesh. Why circumcision of the flesh? That's weird. Like that's not something that we really talk about a whole lot in America in our modern times. It was a big deal to them because circumcision of the flesh for the men was something that was actually a sign of the covenant that Abraham had with God. It was this sign that God chose to use that part of the body and that little minor surgery as a sign of covenant agreement. And that's just the way God wanted that to go. And so they thought, well, because we practice circumcision, everyone who is a heathen, who is outside of the Jewish tradition, they are uncircumcised. And you even notice that even when David and Goliath were uh, going to battle David, he criticized Goliath based on the fact that he was an uncircumcised Philistine because they viewed people who were uncircumcised as out of covenant with God. And, and that was true. But Paul brings a magnifying glass to this idea of circumcision because of the gospel. The magnifying glass Paul brings is that it's about the heart, not about the flesh. You see, if you got Greeks, Paul said, who are following the law and trying to do what's right in the eyes of God and actually trusting in Him, you know, even though they may not physically be circumcised, they're actually circumcised in their heart. In other other words, they get it because the purpose of that circumcision was to set the people apart from everyone else. And he's saying they understand being set apart. They understand even the purpose of the law. They don't follow the law to attain righteousness. They're following the law because they understand they're set apart. It's a different heart. In other words, I am submitted to a higher authority. I'm submitted to a higher rule. I am submitted to God and I'm trusting in Him when He defines what's good and when He defines what's evil. And so I want to pursue what He says is good and so therefore I'm going to submit and I'm going to trust. I'm not going to be judging people and criticizing other people because I want to be pursuing God and I want to keep my eyes fixed on Him, not on what I'm doing better than someone else or how I, I, I've got this part of my life figured out and they're still floundering in this area. It's pride. And we think we're better because of the things that we do that others don't. And, and, and it's the same idea that the Jews thought they were better than the Greeks because they did something and had something that the Greek people didn't have. And Paul said, no, it's not about that at all. It's about the heart. Does he have your heart? Have you had your heart circumcised? Over in Romans chapter 3, let's read just a few more scriptures where Paul further explains this idea of the gospel being the solution. Romans chapter 3 verse 9 says this, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave and they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. 
and as the whole law may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You're aware of this sin. You're aware of the fact that you're not measuring up because the law has shown you how you can't meet the standard. But yet the law's not bad. Jesus said, I didn't come to do away with the law. I came to fulfill the law. Why? He's saying, I'm showing you God's standard. I'm showing you what it really means. I'm showing you what it means to fulfill the law. And he showed us that as an example, not to say the law is bad. It's not bad. What's bad is when we take something that God has set in motion to be good and to show us who he is, and we look at it as if I do these things, then God will like me. Or if I do these things, then God will answer all my prayers and all my dreams and all my wishes will come true. And we treat God like a genie or Santa Claus. That's when these things become bad, when we're looking to the law as a pathway to get from God what we want, instead of looking at the law as a response to God as I'm growing in holiness and righteousness. But it's not the path. It's not the path to God. But the law in of itself is not bad because it shows us God's standard. It shows us His holiness. It shows us who He is and how Jesus fulfilled the law in every single way. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. For there's no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You see here he says, there is a righteousness that is apart from the law. The righteousness that comes by the law, man, that's only fulfilled by God and by uh, his perfect son, Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfilled it. He fulfilled the law. But yet, he became sin who knew no sin so that we might become righteousness. So now there is a righteousness that comes not from the law, a right standing in the eyes of God that comes not from the law. It comes from faith in Jesus Christ. And that's the message of the gospel is that we are justified by faith because he says, for all have fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. So we can't attain it through that path. We can't go the pathway of adherence to the law. No, we have to go the pathway of faith. We have to go the pathway of faith. Faith in what? Faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, as our hope, as our substitute, as the one who took my sin and who took your sin and bore it on the cross so that we might be made right in the eyes of God. And that should change us both now and it should change our eternity. And it should begin to do things in our heart. But now all of a sudden we value different things than we did before because here's what a healthy marriage is. A healthy marriage is contingent upon two people who are pursuing God, pursuing God with their whole heart. Two people. Man, if you have a healthy marriage, you have two people in that relationship who are pursuing God. Because why? If you're pursuing God, these people may have never read a marriage book. These people may have never gone to a marriage conference. They may have never sat under a great counselor. And they can have an incredibly, wonderfully God-honoring, healthy marriage. How? Because they're seeking first the kingdom of God, and God's taking care of the rest. They are humbly trusting in the Lord, and they are growing as they are submitted to His authority, trusting what He says is good to do, the things that God says are good to think on, the things that God says are good to do, and the things that God says are evil to abstain from and stay away from, and the things to engage in that He calls good, that He, that he exhorts us to engage in and commands us to engage in. When we live that way, you not think two people headed in that kind of direction will have a healthy marriage? Absolutely they will. You see, as we pursue God, our faith strengthens. 
And as we pursue God, so do our good works. So does our perspective, our self-importance begins to decrease. Our sacrifice begins to increase. Our servanthood begins to increase. Our submission begins to increase. Our preferring one another begins to increase. These fruits of the Spirit begin to develop in our life of joy and peace and patience and gentleness and kindness and long-suffering. These things begin to manifest in our lives because the Spirit of the living God dwells in us and we're walking after the Spirit, not after the lusts of our flesh. And all of a sudden, I begin to treat my spouse differently. All of a sudden, I begin to think about them differently. Let's read a few more verses. Let's pick this back up in verse 24, Romans 3, verse 24. We're justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at this present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. He's saying, listen, we live out our faith by our works. It kind of reiterates what James says in the book of James where he says, uh, you want to say that you have your faith but no works? He said, I'll actually show you my faith by my works. Because your works are a result of your faith, not a pathway to righteousness, but rather a response from faith and trust in Christ. They become things I want to do, willing sacrifices that I make daily because I'm living to please Him because of what He's doing in my heart. So therefore, I'm not insisting on my own way. I'm not puffed up and full of pride and always looking to get my way right away. And I'm not treating my spouse poorly because I, I'm learning patience and, and, and long-suffering. Some of us, man, we, we need to learn some of those things. And, and it's not something you need to be taught. It's something that needs to happen in your heart. Because you can't just hear great marriage advice over and 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 over again. And then all of a sudden, one day you get out of bed and you go, Wow. All this great marriage advice that I've heard my entire life, I think I'm going to put it into practice. This is fantastic. I'm so glad I absorbed all of that great marriage advice. And then all of a sudden, boom, instantly, like fairy dust magically, you changed and it's all wonderful. No, that's not how it works. Marriage advice is great. There's nothing wrong with it. We should seek counsel from other people. There's wisdom in seeking godly counsel. There's wisdom in talking to people who are further down the road than you. There's wisdom in seeking out uh, uh, wisdom from people who are seeking after God. But folks, just seeking out little fortune cookie, little advice, little snippets of something you can do, you're, you're not going to stick with it. You know why you're not going to stick with it? Because it's a hard issue. The greater need 
is a need for trust and submission and pursuit of God over the need for a new best-selling book. Now, I'm not against those books. I'm not against those conferences. Those things are great for encouragement. They're great when I begin to drift and help me to get course corrected to remind me of things that I need to be doing, yes, but the core of why I'm not doing the things I should be doing is because I still am warring with my flesh. And we are sons and daughters of God who do not walk after the flesh, but after the spirits. And if I'm walking after the spirit of God, Romans 8 and 1 tells me there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So which is better to say? Which is better to say? Think about this. I am following God because I'm supposed to. And when I follow God, I I get what God has for me. And that's your motive. Or is it better to say, I'm following God because of the overwhelming joy I have found through faith in Christ. Which is better to say? That you're following God because your heart's intent is to get stuff from Him? Or you're following God because you're overwhelmed? You're, You're overjoyed. You've delighted in Christ. So, which is better to say then? I love my spouse because of what they do for me, what I get from them when they meet my expectations, or is it better to say, I love my spouse because I get the opportunity to regularly put someone else ahead of me and show them Christ's love and thus serve God by loving them the way Christ loved me? When we think about loving others, when we think about being benevolent, when we think about serving the world, loving people, right? When we think about those things, we often think about it in the context of someone who's down and out, someone we may not know, maybe a coworker, a neighbor, somebody that's that atheist that's really depressed that we just want to show them the love of God and share with them the hope of the gospel and see them turn around. But you know that that applies to your spouse just as much as it applies to that person who's that atheist or that person who you want to serve in that, on that mission trip or that person that you're trying to share the gospel with at work. You know that applies just as much to your spouse to love them with that same love. We skip over that sometimes. We miss out on that. We miss out on the idea of loving those closest to us the way that Christ loved us by giving grace to those closest to us because Christ gave us His grace. We, we miss out on that because we're always thinking it's for somebody else. I mean, not those closest to me. We always think it's for somebody else. We, we think it's for uh, the, the person that we're going to serve in that big outreach that we're going to do where we're going to give all this money to do this great humanitarian thing. And those things are great but not at the expense of not loving our spouses as Christ loved the church, not at the expense of not submitting to one another out of our love for one another, and more importantly, out of our love for Christ, by not serving one another. We're really good at receiving things from our spouse. We're really good at receiving things from God oftentimes and expecting God to do things for us and in us and through us and to us. But what about giving? Are we giving to our spouse? Are we serving our spouse? Are we loving them as Christ loved the church? Because Jesus said, no greater love has a man than this that he be willing to lay down his life for his friends. Am I denying myself? Jesus washed the the feet of his disciples. And then when he was done washing the feet of his disciples, he said, no servant is greater than his master. So what you've seen me do, go do to each other. 
And Jesus said, no servant is greater than his master. And yet he washed their feet. Kind of shows us our role. And it's not just our role to an unbelieving world. It's our role to our spouses. It's our role to them, to love them in that way. You see, it's better to recognize that being married is one of God's greatest instruments of sanctification in the life of the believer. Amen to that. Don't say amen too loud because you're at home and I can't help you. Here's the thing. In, in marriage, we learn humility. We learn to serve. We learn faithfulness. We learn contentment. We learn to give grace. We learn to give forgiveness. We learn about reconciliation. We learn all these things. And all these things are things that Christ has done for us. We read about in Romans chapter 1 and the first part of 2 where we see just how wicked humanity is and how we just want to please ourselves and do our own thing. And then we see how Jesus came and took our place and how now we're not justified by works, but we're justified by faith. And we see how we've received this acceptance into God's family and how we've received this love. And, and it's not anything we deserved. It's not anything we earned. It's not anything we figured out how to get right. Instead, it was this free gift of grace. And we received that. And we're reconciled now and justified by faith. But now, if you're married, you get the opportunity to model those things to another person regularly. And if you can model something you've received, it shows that you've really received it. Because you understand what you've received. If you can't model it, have you really received it? If you can't give it away freely as you freely received it, then you're still making it about you. I would encourage you to evaluate your heart. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 through 11 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Verse, eight, uh, verse 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Man, any marriage, any marriage can make it through any storm and come out stronger if you remember the gospel. Any marriage, listen to me today, any marriage can make it through any storm if you will remember the gospel. We rejoice in our sufferings. Woohoo! Why? Why do we rejoice in our sufferings? That's so counterintuitive. It's so countercultural. 
doesn't make sense to the world. Why would you rejoice in sufferings? Because it will make us better. If we commit to pursue God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, mind, and strength, and ask the Lord to work on us instead of the other person, if we will ask God what needs to change in our hearts, in our perspective, in our values, and if we will evaluate our shortcomings and repent, if we will turn to God for strength with a difficult spouse, if we will give grace and be willing to forgive and work through difficulties and conflicts, I promise you, you will become stronger. doesn't mean that those things don't hurt. It doesn't mean that they're okay or, or, or that they're right or justified. And I understand that there, there, there are some things that, that, that just take such a deep violation in your heart. And I understand that. And I know some marriages end up in divorce and it breaks my heart to hear that. But can I tell you that even if you have gone through the pain of divorce, that you don't have to stay bitter and angry towards your former spouse? that you can still love them, that you can still reconcile with them. Whether you get remarried or not, that's not really the point. Maybe that's a blessing. I've heard of those stories happening, and that's wonderful when that happens. But you don't have to live as a prisoner to the pain that that person caused you or what they did or said to you or what they continue to do to you. You can still forgive them and love them in the middle of how they may be treating you, even though those things sting when you think about them even though you want to avoid them at all cost, how can you still show them the gospel even if you're no longer married to them? You see, rejoicing in suffering, if we will pursue the gospel, if we will cling to Christ, then that suffering will produce in us this perseverance and this perseverance will develop in us this character and this character will develop in us hope and that hope does not disappoint. Why? Because it's rooted and grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ that I know whatever this present suffering I may be going through, it does not compare to the eternal weight of glory I will experience when I see him face to face. Folks, even in the midst of this virus that we are facing as a world, as humanity, the weight of glory that we will receive does not even hold a candle to it. So don't live in fear. Don't live a slave to what the media is pandering. Don't live as a slave to what others have said about you to you or currently saying about you. You pursue Jesus. You seek his face. You put your hope and your trust in him and continue to persevere through the suffering you may be enduring right now. And don't give foothold to the enemy from the past. Don't give foothold to that. You're free in Christ. Isn't that good news? Isn't that awesome? You are free in Jesus, and He will help you to grow stronger as you continue to persevere. You see, Paul said at the right time, while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. Will we be willing to sacrifice for one another? Will we be willing to go through hardships for one another? Will we be patient with one another? Jesus was patient with us, He's still patient with us. The answer is a mutual pursuit of God. It would be a beautiful thing if you could pursue God together. I know that's not the case for every one of you. I know some of you are married to an unbelieving spouse. Maybe you married them before you were a Christ follower, or maybe you've always just taken your faith more seriously than they have, or maybe you married them and they abandoned their faith, or maybe you married them thinking you could win them to Christ, and so you were 
being a missionary, doing the, the, the dating thing, trying to, trying to win them to the Lord by, you know, you um, getting involved in their lives, and it just hasn't worked out because that's not a great idea. But what are you going to do now that you've made this commitment? What are you going to do now that you have said, I do? What are you going to do now that they're the one? <laughs> they're the only one. And all of a sudden, uh, all of the glitter has disappeared. All the fairy dust is gone. And, and, and all your hopes and expectations, you're going, I thought you were the one, and I'm not so sure now. Can I tell you that pursuing Christ is the answer? Can I tell you that He is your hope during this time? And the way you treat them is your testimony of you understanding and having received the gospel. So when we say, I do, here's what we're saying. There's no one else. We're saying you are the one. You are the only one. That means when it feels blissful and when it feels terrible. That means when you just want to run away into something that looks a lot easier. That means when you want to run away into something that looks a lot more fun. I'm, not, I'm just not having fun anymore. We just don't connect anymore. We're just two different people. We've grown apart. All these things that people say. Can I exhort you when you're feeling those feelings and thinking those thoughts? Can I exhort you and plead with you to continue to persevere and to pursue Christ? Because the gospel fixes marriages. Because it reminds me that it's not about me. The gospel reminds me that I've been given something I do not deserve. And that's grace. I don't deserve forgiveness. I don't deserve his love. I receive it by faith because of Jesus, and I receive it freely. Think about this. If a husband and wife both listen to this message and both respond by examining their hearts instead of blaming one another, instead of trying to manipulate one another to meet their expectations, how much healthier is their marriage going to be? You see, folks, it really is a heart issue. A heart submitted to God, that is pursuing God, and to please Him will be shaped on the potter's wheel to love more and more like Jesus loved, to be more and more patient like Jesus was patient, to serve more and more like Jesus served, to give grace, to reconcile like Jesus did. So if you're married and you're with your spouse, I want you to look at them. Cheesy time, all right? Look at your spouse right now, and I want you to tell them in this moment, you are the only one for me. Can you do that? You are the only one for me. And then I want you to tell them this, and I want to pursue growing in Christ with you. I want to pursue growing in Christ with you. So I want you to do this. This is how I want you to pursue growing in Christ this week. I want you to take the text that we use, Romans chapter 1 through 5, and I want you to take a chapter a night, and I want you to read it together. And I want you to talk about it. If you're dating, do this with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. If you're single and you desire to be married, do this to prepare your heart for your future spouse. If you're single and you don't desire to be married, do this to, to, grow, to grow in your devotion to Jesus. But let's keep growing together in Christ's likeness. I want to pray over marriages today as we end our time here together. Lord, thank you so much for all of these folks joining all over the world, hearing your gospel message being proclaimed. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen marriages. I pray that you would give hope, Lord, where there has been hopelessness. I pray, Lord, you would give strength where spouses may be weary. I pray, Lord, you would give direction where people may be lacking that as well. I pray that your will would be done and that you would be glorified in marriages, Father, as we give this to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. Before you go, number 6 and 24 says, May the Lord bless you and keep you may make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. 
the Lord lift up his countenance upon each and every one of you and give you his peace. God bless you, Word of Grace.